Hey everybody, good to be with you this evening. Um, go ahead and turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 13. That's where we're going to be, and we're going to be in verse 13. As we continue through the book of Acts, um, really the story of the early church um, begins to take on this particularly uh, missional tone. And we see that the early church is now going into Roman spaces and Greek spaces, and they're doing all of this from the city of Antioch. And uh, really from this point forward, you see that it's just this Gentile mission. The Jews in a large part, and even what we're going to talk about this evening, the Jews in a large part have rejected uh, the message of Jesus. And so there's just these Gentiles that are open to it. They're open to um, hearing what, who is this Jesus and, and what exactly took place in his life? Why did he matter? So um, we're going we're gonna to read a moment where Paul actually shares the gospel uh, with some Jews who end up rejecting it and then with some Gentiles who end up receiving it. So uh, Acts 13, verse 13, and we have like 40 some odd verses to read, so buckle up. Uh, but it's all narrative. It's, it's going to be enjoyable. It says this, from Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga and Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. From Perga, they sailed to Poseidon, Antioch. On the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and sat down. So they go right to the heart of the Jewish culture in Antioch. Verse 15, after reading from the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them saying, brothers, if you have a word of exhortation for the people, please speak. In other words, hey, who are these new guys? Paul, Barnabas, do you guys want to say anything? Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, fellow Israelites and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt with mighty power. He led them out of that country. For about 40 years, he endured their conduct in the wilderness. And he overthrew seven nations in Canaan, giving their land to his people as their inheritance. All this took about 450 years. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel, the prophet. Then the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled for 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king. God continued to testi God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus as he promised. Before the coming of Jesus, John preached a, a repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. As John was completing his work, he said, Who do you suppose I am? I'm not the one you are looking for, but there is one coming after me whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Fellow children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus, yet in condemning him they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed, to kill Jesus. Verse 29, when they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now 
his witnesses to our people, these eyewitnesses who saw the resurrected Jesus, they exist. Verse 32, we tell you the good news that God, what God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. God raised Jesus from the dead so that he will never be subject to decay. As God has said, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. So it is also stated elsewhere, you will not let your Holy One see decay. Now, when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his ancestors and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. What he's doing here is he's, he's saying it wasn't David who was the Messiah. It was Jesus. He was the one who didn't see decay. He was resurrected. Verse 38, therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I'm going to do something in your days that you would never believe even if someone told you. Verse 42, as Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. They're interested. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, so a week later, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, such a key phrase, when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. They began to contradict what Paul was saying. So they were receptive, but they see the crowds and they begin to contradict him and they heaped abuse on him. Verse 46, then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly. We had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles, for this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored. Remember that honored the word of the Lord and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region, but the Jewish leaders incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. So they, Paul and Barnabas, shook the dust off their feet as a warning to them and went to Iconium and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. What just an incredible story. And um, what I want to do is I want to just bring out of this story a couple of what I would call lightning rod phrases um, in this discourse that help us really understand what the gospel is. This is one of the first sermons that we hear from Paul, and there's some really key points in it. So as we go through this whole message, I want you to be asking yourselves really two questions. And the two questions that I want you to ask are these. The first one is this, have I experienced what Paul is talking about here personally? 
Have I experienced this, this freedom, this resurrected Jesus? Have I experienced it? And the second question that I want you to ask yourself is this. Can I share what Paul shared? Would I have the ability to actually verbally share with my neighbor, with a coworker, uh, with a friend, what Paul shares here? So first thing that we need to talk about what Paul brings out, what he bases his entire discourse on is the meta-narrative. So look down at your Bibles, verse 23. Uh, this is where he starts. It says this, uh, From this man's descendants, God has brought Israel the Savior Jesus as he promised. Notice that where Paul begins to explain who Jesus is and why Jesus matters, he, he roots him in this descendant line. And notice where he starts. If you, if you go back to verse 17, he starts here. The God of the people of Israel chose um, our ancestors. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt with mighty power, he led them out of that country. That's where he begins the whole discourse to explain who this Jesus is and why he matters. Eventually, he moves on to the judges of Israel. He moves on to the kings of Israel. But why does he do that? Why does he start with this whole, really this long history that we just read? Um, well, because Jesus doesn't just suddenly appear um, as a universal sort of superhero with a cape, just like, and then there was this superhero named Jesus who came and saved everybody. Jesus comes from the people of Israel through their history. And understanding this makes Jesus all the more compelling and all the more beautiful. We need to know what the meta narrative is, or um, in other words, we need to know what the story that God is telling from creation to present day actually is. What is that larger story that we are a part of? Now, the Bible Project, who some of you guys probably have heard of them, they do an amazing job walking through um, all of this. So um, search for the Bible Project online, watch their videos. They do a great job just kind of unfolding what is that meta narrative, what is the whole story of Scripture. But I want to just quickly do a little bit of a refresher for all of us. Um, the story that we are a part of goes something like this. God created all that we see around us. Um, and it's a good world, but it's not perfect. Uh, there's this serpent that comes in and is able to cause people to choose to use their free will incorrectly and to choose against God, therefore spreading the dominion of the enemy rather than spreading God's dominion. Um, there, this actually ends up happening in Genesis chapter 3. There's something that we call the fall, the fall of mankind. And uh, Adam and Eve use their ability to choose to listen to the serpent and to actually choose what the serpent says in contradiction to what God says. Now, right there in that chapter, chapter 3 of Genesis, there is this glimmer of hope. In Genesis 3.15, we get this little line that says, one day there's going to be a man who comes. There's going to be seed of the woman. There's going to be um, an offspring of this woman, Eve, who is able to crush the head of this serpent and render him powerless. And so really, for the rest of the book of Genesis, and certainly for the, all of the Old Testament, we begin to ask ourselves this question, who will it be? Who's going to be this snake crusher? Who is the one who's going to come along and actually liberate people from listening to the enemy and being controlled by this serpent? So first thing we think is, well, is it Abraham? God chooses Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Is it going to be Abraham? Is he the one who is going to uh, build this family, become a father of a nation that eventually puts down the children of the serpent? 
Um, It's not Abraham, but he starts something. So um, is it Moses? Maybe it's Moses who leads people out of their slavery, leads them in this exodus uh, to get freedom and to worship God as they see fit. Um, It's not Moses. Moses passes away. Then comes along Saul. Is it the first king of Israel? Is it um, this guy who who seems to check all of the boxes, certainly physically, and who even becomes like one of the prophets? Maybe it's Saul, but it certainly isn't Saul. If you know the story, uh, Saul fails miserably as a king. Uh, And then the question that I think a lot of people ask, certainly within this context of the Old Testament, and, and apparently in the context of the first century, is this, is it David? Maybe the Messiah, maybe the snake crusher is David, this shepherd king. Um, But we know how the story goes. It wasn't any of them. Uh, Eventually, the nation of Israel actually descends into this really like dark night of a nation's soul, and they go into exile. The Babylonians conquer them, remove them from their land, uh, take them away from their homes, away from their families, away from their centers of worship. And uh, it just seems like this this is the decline of a nation. So some begin to doubt. Many Israelites begin to doubt, is there even a Messiah coming for us? Maybe we've read this wrong. Maybe we've gotten this all wrong. And when things seem the most hopeless, there's this announcement to a teenage girl and to some shepherds that the Messiah, the one who will save Israel, is coming soon. And what is so beautiful about understanding this broader story is that we see theologically it is Jesus who is the snake crusher. He is the new Abraham starting a new family. Uh, He is the Moses leading each and every one of us through our own personal exodus. He is our king like Saul, and he is our shepherd like David. This is what Paul is evoking as he tells the story of Israel to a group of Jews. This is the gravity of his message. And what I want to do is I want to focus now on um, what it seems like Paul emphasizes. He tells this whole story, but then he, he really clues into why did Jesus come? What was Jesus trying to accomplish? What did Jesus emphasize? It's the same thing Paul emphasizes. So look down in your Bibles, verse 26. Here's what he emphasizes. Fellow children of Abraham, and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. So he specifically says, okay, if you're going to get what Jesus did, you have to understand I'm talking to children of Abraham. Now notice, he doesn't say children of Moses because it wasn't really rule following that they needed to be familiar with in order to receive what Jesus is bringing. Um, What they needed is the same thing that it takes to be a child of Abraham, belief in God, just like Abraham believed God and was credited as righteous. That same belief is going to have to be applied to Jesus to now become children of God, to be in the family of Jesus. Believing God in every situation, thus reversing the effect of Adam and Eve one day at a time. And so he says, children of Abraham, listen to this. Now skip down to verse 38. Here's where he gets specific. He says this, therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. The forgiveness of sins is this, is, it's this bullseye. It's this um, directive, this focus that Jesus had. Friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Verse 39, through him, everyone who believes think Abraham, everyone who believes is set free from every sin. You want to be set free from sin, you have to believe him. 
Everyone who believes is set free from every sin. This is a justification. This is a right standing. This is a clean relationship, a clear conscience that you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Here is Paul's primary focus of his entire life. If you don't believe me, read the book of Romans. His entire life focus uh, was the same focus that Jesus had, and it's this. The hope of the world is rescue from personal sin. The hope of the world is that there may be rescue from personal sin. Now, maybe you hear that and you're like, gosh, Alex, you sound like the preachers I grew up with. (laughs) You sound like the boring old church that I used to go to. Well, look, I understand. Personal sin is not something that people seem to find much of an issue in anymore, but I would argue that personal sin is the issue of our day today. It is the issue of all of the cultural upheaval that we're seeing going on around us right now. It was the issue that Jesus identified And it was the issue that Paul identified that ultimately kept humans from relationship with God and from treating one another the way that God treats people. It's personal sin. But the problem with personal sin, at least in our current culture today, is that it's just so personal. We don't like the idea that someone could be considered personally wrong or morally out of line. And so what we tend to do is we tend to get rid of truth altogether. And then what we do is we relegate evil to systems and processes and organizations and the man. It's just the man. He's the one who's evil. He's the one who's wrong. If I had a dollar for every dorm room conversation I've had, this just lasted late into the night where we thought of all the problems with all of the systems, all of the people of power. It's power. That's what's wrong. Um, Without ever asking ourselves this question, could the things that I see wrong in the world around me take up any residence in my own heart? Could the things that I see wrong in the world around me ever originate in my heart? I love what David asks. David, this great psalmist, he says this, Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me. Know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me. As Christians, we have to do the same thing. We're far more concerned with what's in here than what's out there. Search my heart, God, and know me. Find if there's any way in me that is out of line with the way that you see me and the way that you see the world. The primary problem for all of humans is not the large forces of power and control from without, but the inability for self-control within. This is what Jesus identified. I mean, this is the literal focus of the gospel. The first thing that Jesus speaks out of his mouth in the book of Mark is this. Repent and believe the kingdom is at hand. Do you see what he's saying? He's giving us a formula for how we get to the kingdom, for how we see the kingdom. He's saying the kingdom moves at your ability to repent, to to come into alignment with the way that I see you, the way that I see the world. Notice that he, he doesn't call out the Roman government. He doesn't say the kingdom is at hand, so Rome, you're on notice. He doesn't say, um, all of those tax collectors, you're the real problem. And so you need to repent because you've had economic power, you've had privilege, and you need to give it up. And that's where we're going to see the kingdom. No, what he is saying is that the kingdom advances at the pace of personal repentance. I love how C.S. Lewis puts this. He says, 
God doesn't tell anyone, anybody else's story but their own. In the book of, uh, in Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan is constantly just speaking to the individual as they ask, but what about Eustace? Uh, What about this person? What about that person? He says, oh, I only tell you your story. He's that intimate. Our solutions must mirror Jesus' solutions. Our concerns must mirror Jesus' concerns. It is very difficult to use the same solutions Jesus used without having a renewed mind like Jesus had. If we, what can happen in in cultural moments of upheaval is we can get so caught up in the news cycle, so caught up in the voices that we're listening to on social media that we actually forget to simply just ask the, the question, God, what do you think about this? God, would you search my heart on this particular issue? So let me be clear. Let me be clear. Wherever Christians find legalized anti-Jesus action, we need to confront that, especially within democracy where we actually have a say. So abortion, we need to confront that. That flies directly in the face of God making people in his image. Sex trafficking, we need to confront that. Racist policies, we need to confront those wherever we find them. In a democracy, we can confront Uh, behavior that is wrong when it's been legalized. But when it comes to the things that are even more dangerous and more damaging, the things of the heart and the things of motive, we have to admit as Christians, the only thing that can change the heart is the welcomed internal rule of Jesus. The welcomed internal rule of Jesus. I've uh, recently heard people talking a lot about social justice and talking a lot about like defining what social justice is, why Christians should care about social justice. And uh, I heard this kind of metaphor that I thought was interesting. Basically, the, the kind of metaphor or the word or the picture goes like this. Imagine that there's a group of friends down at the Willamette River having a picnic, and they're having a great time joking, playing games. All of a sudden, somebody in the group looks out into the Willamette River and they see a baby floating in the river. And everybody freaks out, like, what is this baby doing in the river? Somebody takes off down the bank, they dive into the river, and they rescue the baby. But just as they're coming out of the water, they turn around and they look, and there's more. One, two, three, four more babies floating down the river. And then all of a sudden, there's 10 more babies and 20 more babies. The river is full of babies. And so they start, social justice is this. It's, it's, it's getting people to come rescue babies out of the river. And the social justice mentality goes like this. Well, who's throwing these babies in the river? Who is the person who is throwing these babies in the river? Let's go upstream and let's find out who that is so that we can stop them. And that is social justice. But I would argue that that is not biblical justice. The only way to do real justice is to see those who intend evil, who intend to throw babies into the river, to see those who intend evil change to love because of an encounter with our loving God, King Jesus. That's the real change. That's the real justice that actually works at a heart level. And that is why encounter with God is one of the primary focuses of our church. See, Whatever you believe Jesus did to save you will become the solution you use to solve the evil that you see around you. I want you to think about this. Write this down. Whatever you believe Jesus did to save you 
will become the solution you use to solve the evil that you see around you. So if you have felt coerced into following Jesus, you will likely coerce people to do the same. But if you have made a decision in a moment of humility to freely give all of your life to him because of the love and beauty of Christ, then you will show others the same level of grace that you've experienced. There are a few different ways of viewing what Jesus' life did. Um, there are a few different ways of looking at what, what solutions did Jesus use to go up the river and to change the heart of the person who intends evil, which has been all of us, is what the scriptures teach us. Um, did Jesus come to just teach us a new way? He's like, if I could just teach these people not to throw babies in the river, not to do wrong, if I could just teach them um, and inaugurate this spiritual kingdom, then maybe the kingdom will come. Or maybe was he just the guy who came to die for sins? Doesn't really matter what Jesus taught. He died for our sins. That's pretty much all that we really need to know. Um, or is the main thing that he defeated death? Hey, listen, this life is crazy. We're all going to die, but don't worry. Someday you got a ticket to heaven. Now, you may be thinking, okay, all of those I can see little bits of truth and you would be right. See, there are really three big, what are called atonement theories in Christian theology or in just like common speak, there are really three big emphases of Jesus' life. Uh, there's substitutionary atonement, there's the kingdom of God inauguration, and then there's Christus victor. There's others, but these are the three that I see most at play in the hearts and minds of believers today. Substitutionary atonement, Kingdom of God inauguration and Christus Victor. And now when they are, each of these are left in isolation from the others, we're, we're going to have a lopsided gospel. Or another way to think about it is that we will likely not use the same solutions Jesus used to solve sin because we've become so consumed with just one of those things that we see Jesus doing. I once heard that the gospel message, the message of Jesus, what he did uh, for us to, to get in us um, is good news. And it's good news like a newspaper. It's like a newspaper filled with the best news. So if you want to know all of the good news for every part of your life, then you have to read the whole paper. You gotta read all of it. So let's do that right now. I wanna talk about each of these and I wanna show you what they add to our understanding of what Jesus did to, to take care of the issue of human sin. So firstly, substitutionary atonement. Here's the passage that goes with this. Here's where we find the truth of substitutionary atonement in the Bible, and there's many more, but here's one of my favorites. It's 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21, it says this, God made him who had no sin, Jesus, to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. The truth here is that just like uh, the Jews had to sacrifice lambs in order to cover the sin of Israel, Jesus became our perfect sacrifice um, so that we could, our sins could be covered. Where there was wrong done, um, we get what, where there was wrong done, uh, there was a cost and Jesus paid it all. He paid for the whole cost of our wrongdoing, of our throwing the babies into the river, so to speak. So then, like the passage says, uh, we get what he deserves and he gets what we deserve. He becomes sin, we become righteousness. There is an exchange. Now, there are some pitfalls of looking at this in isolation. Um, there is this mentality that you just get a ticket to heaven and that's really what Jesus came to do was give you this ticket to heaven. And, and if you believe that, then you miss out on heaven here 
here and now. That Jesus actually was interested in not just getting you into heaven, but getting heaven into you so that everywhere you'd go and whatever you touch, little bits of heaven are left. Um, oftentimes, this, can, this, this belief on its own can lead to isolation and hunkering down in order to protect theology, protect ourselves, rather than making global change through surrendered hearts living with the power of God. So what we have to get right from this and what is right from substitutionary atonement is this. Jesus took on pain, sin, and death so that we could get freedom here and now. Not just a ticket to heaven, it is the power of God's sacrifice and the complete changing of our identity from lost to found, sinners to saints, filled with the same spirit Jesus had that enables us to work and pray for heaven to come. Substitutionary atonement means that we, our identity has changed and it changes everything. Secondly, the inauguration of the kingdom. Here's the passage where this is found. Mark 1 verse 14. Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. Here's the good news. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. The truth uh, to this theory or the truth to this emphasis uh, is that Jesus is the inaugurator of the kingdom that the Jews have longed for for all time. The word kingdom here is really interchangeable for the word heaven on earth or the phrase heaven on earth. And so this is a huge focus of our church. This is something that we find very important is that we get to be kingdom people who come up with kingdom solutions, thinking heaven to earth, not earth to heaven or earth to earth. Now, there are some pitfalls of looking at this theory or this emphasis in isolation of the others. See, without a strong belief of Jesus as our savior, we reduce him to a moralistic teacher telling people what to do in order to be about the kingdom. So you just need to do what he says and then kingdom is a result. The kingdom becomes a word that simply means anything that is nice, sounding or socially conscious done in the spirit of Jesus. It doesn't really matter if Jesus would actually do that. It seems like that comes from the spirit of Jesus. So, hey, that sounds pretty kingdom. Um, here, Jesus is not a cosmic king whose blood reversed the inheritance of Adam, who is coming to judge the world. He's more of an inspiration for social change, like a Harvey Milk or a Martin Luther King Jr. His assassination was a result of speaking truth to power, so we should do the same thing. Those are the pitfalls. Now, what we have to get right about this emphasis is this. The kingdom isn't a strategy for perfecting political policy in America. The kingdom is the internal rule and reign of God so that heaven gets in you and then starts to come out through you. Lastly, Christus Victor. Christus Victor. This is such an awesome one. Uh, Colossians 2, verse 13 through 15, uh, it says this, When you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away, nailing it to a cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The truth is that Jesus' death and resurrection were his coronation as king. What looked like this peasant 
being killed on an instrument that not even Roman citizens could be killed on was actually the coronation of the king of all of humanity. He defeated death and the demonic powers behind sin and evil. Christians get to walk in that victory over evil and corporately, um, over evil personally and corporately until heaven and earth are fully united. Now, there are some pitfalls of looking at this and focusing on this in isolation of the other two. Only viewing Jesus as the defeater of death and the victor over the demonic could miss out on him as a teacher who taught wisdom and ways of the kingdom and a savior whose blood actually accomplished relationship, not just cosmic victory. The liberation of people spiritually is important, but there must be something for them to do and someone to do it with. What we have to get right is this. We don't live as victims. No matter what we experience here in this life, we identify with him more than our own personal histories. Jesus made it possible for us to live as more than conquerors, able to be at peace in any storm and have authority over the demonic forces of evil. Death is not the end, so we are a people full of hope. Okay, so then we get to live in this good reality, substitutionary atonement, the kingdom of God is at hand, Christ is victor, and we get to share that reality with others. We now have freedom from, an internal, from the internal rule of sin. We get free from sin. We have a new heart of flesh where sin had once calloused our previous heart and our motives. We have the ability to follow the promptings of the Holy Spirit. We have adherence to Jesus as a teacher and his way of life. And we have authority to trample what Jesus has trampled. We have a new identity, no longer primarily as sinners, but as saints. Jesus' blood is stronger than Adam's. Jesus' blood is stronger than Adam's. This is our message and access to all of the benefits of this gospel that really do come from us honoring it, from us honoring it. Look down at your Bibles, verse 44. It says this, On the next Sabbath day, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. They began to contradict what Paul was saying and heaped abuse on him. The ongoing problem for really all of the book of Acts is that the affection from people, is an affection from people and wanting to have the crowds pay attention to you could actually keep you from honoring the truth, could keep you from experiencing all that Jesus has on offer. But watch what honoring this message does. When you do honor the message and you do honor the messenger, regardless of the things that you might stumble over traditionally with that person, look down at your Bibles, verse 48. Here's what it looks like. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. That's honor. And we really have this dynamic at play right before us culturally. It's the very same dynamic that we see here, and it's currently in our cultural context as we share the good news. Some will honor it and some will dishonor it, and we need to know what to do. See, I really believe that we are witnessing the death of the cultural Christian. Um, it's just becoming impossible to not be fully in or fully out. And I actually think it's a really good thing. See, why would somebody give their entire life to something that the rest of the world is calling dangerous and backwards and on the wrong side of history? Unless 
They had really tasted the goodness of God to the degree that they were fully surrendered to him and didn't care what people thought about them. That's the truth. Because of this cultural pressure, many are finding their so-called faith was actually just how they'd been raised. So like deconstructing faith. Oh, that was just how I was raised. I don't know. Maybe it's not true. Or they were originally just more attracted to a community of people, but they didn't really believe all that stuff that the church believed. And so the gospel never really did sink down deep for them. And so we've been seeing this movement to deconstruct the church and to deconstruct faith. I saw this funny post uh, from somebody the other day that basically said, defund the police and defund the church. I think that's hilarious because first of all, nobody forces you to pay like taxes to your church. So how are you gonna defund it? But secondly, the church is not something that runs on funds, but on the power of the spirit, filling people down throughout human history since Jesus' resurrection. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Screwtape Letters, calls the Church of Jesus Christ the, the most powerful force down through human history, unable to be blocked by borders or any kind of human power. And I just wanna say, that Saints Hill is a church that is not here to deconstruct, but is a church that's here to build. I know that some of you may have to deconstruct some of the things that you've believed in order to believe correctly, but ultimately the focus of our church is on building. You can either be a critic or you can be a builder, and we're gonna be builders. And you guys are so good at this. At this. I see this in your lives. Um, I see that you guys like, you, you, you go deep with the Lord and surrender. You're asking him these questions, search my heart and know me. You're sharing the gospel with your friends around you. You're asking the Holy Spirit to give you direction. See, I believe that our church will build personal histories with God and his faithfulness that are so strong, they won't need to be deconstructed someday. They won't need to be torn down. But this isn't always accepted. Um, and, and when it isn't accepted, watch what the disciples do. Verse 51, it says this. So they shook the dust off their feet as a warning to them, and they went to Iconium, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. They shake dust off their feet. Now, what is that? Well, theologian David Williams, he points out that strict Jews uh, performed this symbolic action on upon entering the Holy Land from abroad, lest they be contaminated with the dust of profane places. So what is it to shake off the dust? Well, in some sense, it's, a it's the pronouncement of the judgment of God on that place. If you don't receive the gospel, then the judgment of God is coming to you. I'm shaking the dust off. It's like, I'm brushing, I'm brushing it off my shoulders. I'm not gonna worry about it anymore. And secondly, it's a way to not personalize the hatred. It's a way to identify ourselves with Christ and say, I'm in Christ. But when somebody rejects Christ, that doesn't necessarily mean they're rejecting me. And so I'm able to just shake the dust off my feet and I'm not gonna worry about it anymore. And that's really helpful because it helps us understand what our responsibility is and what our responsibility is not. See, another way to think about responsibility is this. What are the hills that you're gonna die on? When it comes to the gospel, when it comes to Christianity, when it comes to the Bible, when it comes to church, what are the hills that you as an individual Christian are going to die on? Because those hills become your responsibility to tell the truth in those places, to, to be a thinking Christian in those places, to be a loving Christian full of grace, the grace that Jesus has shown you in those places. And I just wanna say that Saints Hill is a church that has hills that we're gonna die on, that we will put our foot down on. We will shake the dust off if people persecute us for these specific 
specific beliefs. Now, our 10 core values are a really good um, place to start. If you wanna know the hills that we're willing to die on, go ahead, look at our 10 core values, listen to the 10 core values series, um, read our vision. Those are things that are our vision and our mission. These are things that are not up for negotiation. We will die on those hills. Um, but for the time that we are in currently, I think that it needs to be said that we will die on the hill of identifying the same problem that Jesus identified and using the same solutions that Jesus used to remedy that problem. That is a hill that we will die on, just like Paul and Barnabas were willing to die on that hill and shake off the dust from that hill. We're witnessing a world that is essentially desperate for the kingdom and doesn't know how to get it, and a church that is ignoring the way Jesus got the kingdom. So to that we shake the dust off our feet. We're not gonna be a part of that. When we see parts of the church revert to using the solutions of the earth to fix the problems of the earth, they've left Jesus behind. So we shake the dust off our feet. We will be a church that keeps the life-changing power of the gospel central. My hope is that every disciple at Saints Hill would become a walking power encounter with God so that people see, I can shake the dust off of these other solutions. I wanna be about what they're about. Look at the passage that they quote when they end their whole message about what Jesus uh, had come to do. Verse 41, it says this, "'Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I am going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. That's how good the gospel is. It's like, even if somebody tells you this, it's like, it's almost too good to imagine. This is why encounter with God is so important. The gospel is rarely argued perfectly. True understanding comes from meeting the gospel giver. When you see him, everything makes sense. Even giving your whole life to him suddenly seems more reasonable than not. Encounters with God matter because his presence matters. It's the ultimate gift for all of humanity, and it's the primary message in Hill that we will die on, is that God is near and he wants relationship with people. Follow me, let's encounter him together. The sweet presence of the Lord, the comfort of the shepherd, the logic of the counselor, is at our fingertips at all times. That is why we love him. And this is our privilege to live with him for all of our days. I wanna end with a story um, just to encourage you. Uh, the other day, um, the elders were called together to go pray um, for a gal in our church who was having some uh, really serious health issues from pneumonia to stomach issues to esophagus issues and just having a really scary time. And, we were over there um, just hearing from her and she, she was saying, you know, I've been praying and asking God for a word for this season. Like, what do you say about me in this season? Am I gonna make it? Is this gonna ruin my life? Will I never get better? You know, all those things and, and those thoughts of fear that come in times like those. And uh, she said, and then God told me, go to Exodus chapter two and, and, read a, and read this particular verse. And so she turns to Exodus two and she goes to the verse and it's about the burning bush. And in it, it says, you know, the, the bush was not consumed though the fire blazed on this bush. And she felt the Lord say this to her. She felt God say, um, fire normally in its natural abilities consumes things. But because I was in the fire, I didn't consume the bush you're not gonna be consumed by this illness. I know there's a fire going right now. I know there's a testing going right now, but your marriage is gonna make it. You're gonna make it. You're going to get 
well. So as she's sharing this, we're like, oh, what a great word. You got to hang on to that. So then we go to pray for her. And it was so funny. It's like, man, very, it's like, just prophetic words left and right. It's like, wow, we really haven't gathered in a long time. We just had like an overload of uh, prophetic words to share. So we're just sharing prophetic words, this and that. And uh, Andoni, who we FaceTimed in, he hadn't been there to hear about this word that God had given her. And uh, so he didn't know about any of that backstory. All of a sudden he just goes, I just have this image of you, you and your husband, you're like this, the burning bush and uh, you're not gonna be consumed by this. And God's gonna use this as a symbol that he intends good for people and he intends to heal people and all this stuff and all of us just start laughing just holy spirit in that moment just touched down and it was such confirmation he didn't even know and it was just by the spirit an encounter with god an encounter with the father who knows us intimately knows what he's saying as a god of clarity that is one of the greatest gifts that any of us can have so i want to pray this for you that if you're confused right now if you're looking around you and you're like i don't even know what hills i want to die on i don't know do i want to die on any hill? What is the gospel? Have I really experienced it? Can I share this in the same way that Paul shared it? I want to pray for you right now. So go ahead and put your hand over your heart and I'm going to pray for you. God, would you just equip the people of Saints Hill to know you. Encounter these people wherever they're at, whether they're in their car listening to this, whether they're in their kitchen doing dishes, whether they're to gathered together in one of our home Sunday groups. God, would you come right now? Holy Spirit, rush in and meet these people. It's one thing to hear truth. It's one thing to even experience power. It's a whole nother thing to sense your presence with us. So we just say thank you for that great privilege. Thank you for that great privilege of being able to walk through all of life with you, knowing that you're never distant, you're always near. And now I ask God, speak into these people's lives. Give them words of courage, just like you gave that gal from our church. Encourage them right now in Jesus' name, amen.